Well, I'm glad you uh, are with us this morning, whether you're here in person or whether you are uh, home online. Um, my hope and prayer for you is that you're blessed today and that this, uh, this, this service this morning encourages you as you move forward into the rest of your week. Imagine, if you will, I've always wanted to say that. It sounds like I'm starting a, you know, a, a Twilight Zones uh, episode. Imagine, if you will, a small church. Uh, it's only a year or two old. And this church doesn't have a building. They, they, they meet in homes. Everyone who's a part of this church is a new convert, which is very exciting, but, but there's a practical side of that. They don't have any seasoned leadership, no experience. The guys who plan the church uh, haven't around, been around for a year and a half or two years, and um, there are no other churches in the city to lean upon, so they're completely on their own. There's turmoil, not in the church necessarily, but there's turmoil in the community. Um, not People in this community aren't very happy about this new religious development. In fact, the men who started the church, they were only there for about three weeks before they were run out of town. And when the authorities discovered that they had been running out of town, that they're no longer there, they arrested some of these members of this infant church and accused them of stirring up trouble. This is the setting of Paul's first letter, the first letter to the Thessalonians. In fact, the first letter that most scholars think that Paul wrote. It's the newest, youngest or oldest, I guess, eldest letter uh, of Paul's. It was written about 50 or 51 A.D. And it's written to a church, this new church in Thessalonica in Greece. And the men who started the church, Paul, Silas and, and Timothy, you can read about it in Acts 17 if you want to. There's about nine or ten verses that describe what happened. Uh, Paul hasn't been at the church for close to two years, and, and he knows that these people, these, these precious people, are under tremendous pressure. And so he, he writes them as this short letter to encourage them and to, and to give them some sort of hope that they can hang in there in the midst of an almost hopeless situation. Today we're kicking off a new sermon series from this first letter that Paul wrote, from 1 Thessalonians. And we're calling it Finding Hope in a in a hopeless world. You know, there's been a lot going on in our world that can cause us to find it hard to be optimistic, can make it hard to find hope. COVID-19 pandemic, racial tensions in our nation, injustice, riots, political polarization. And of course, the most recent, the events of this past week in the Capitol, which were alarming and sad. There is a coarsening in our society where people demonize those who think differently than them, And verbal bombs are dropped on social media. Relationships are strained, even ended sometimes. People are becoming disillusioned about politics, our institutions, the justice system, religion. Anxiety and fear tend to be winning the day, it seems. How are we to find hope and be people of hope in a seemingly hopeless world? Before we look at what Paul has to say in 1 Thessalonians, words that I think are, are, are a lifeline for us, there are a few things that I want to say up front. First, Paul, in a different letter, the letter to the Ephesians, reminds us that as Christians, our enemies are not other people. He says we do not battle against flesh and blood. Uh, yes, there are times we need to have an argument or a debate or, or oppose certain things and work at certain things and you know, stand up for certain things. Yes, but he tells us that our enemies are not flesh and blood. They're not people of a different skin color or a different political persuasion or a different worldview. 
We fight against, he reminds us, we fight against the forces of, of evil, of Satan and his, his followers. And, and we work to bring God's truth and love to the world, not through force or earthly power, but through the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, we are Christians first. Always we are to be Christians first. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's a theme of the New Testament. Our supreme loyalty is to be to Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what got so many Christians in trouble in the first few centuries A.D. Uh, they lived in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, which was the most powerful uh, nation or empire in the world, politically, economically, militarily. In the Roman Empire, you were expected to give your supreme loyalty to the empire and to Caesar. It was demanded of you. And if you didn't, it would cost you something. It might cost you status or business and social connections. It could, it could strain or cost you relationships with loved ones. It could even cost you your life. And it did for some of those early believers. In the first few centuries, Christians became known as people who put their allegiance to God first, above everything else. They didn't seek power, but rather sought to serve their neighbors, especially those who were the most vulnerable. The widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the eunuch, the sick, the poor. And because they did not seek earthly power, but rather demonstrated the power of Christ to change lives, their world was changed and transformed. We are Christians first and our citizenship is in heaven. That's a theme in the scriptures. And whenever we forget this and value earthly power over the power of a sacrificial life modeled after Jesus, in the end, we lose what we're seeking, spiritual power. Third, if you want to win the hearts and minds of people for Christ, it never happens through the exercise of earthly power. If a person agrees with you and your worldview because they feel threatened or bullied or because they simply think that's the expedient thing to do, then you haven't won their heart. You've just won their acquiescence. The power that we as Christians are to operate out of is the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of, of God's truth, the power of God's love, because that power is ultimately undefeatable. And that power has changed the world in the lives of countless people since the days of Christ. And that gives me, that gives me a lot of hope. So let's dig into 1 Thessalonians, having said all that, chapter 1, and find hope for living in an often seemingly hopeless world. Chapter 1. It's a short chapter. I'm going to read all ten verses. It'll be on the screen uh, behind me. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Those are the three church planters. To the church of the Thessalonians and God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, and we continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. We, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia, and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere 
And therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what happened when we visited you. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued us from the coming wrath. So in verse 3, Paul lists three essential qualities, three qualities that he famously, most famously describes in 1 Corinthians 13, where he writes, Now these three remain faith, hope, and love. And in verse 3, he pairs them together for the first time. Remember, this is his first letter, where he writes, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in Jesus Christ. So what does he do here? He commends the Thessalonians that in the midst of a difficult, tough situation, that their faith is actually doing something. It's not pie in the sky Faith just for the next life. It's faith that is producing work. It's doing good works. Even in the midst of difficult situations, doing good works, both for those who follow Jesus and for those who don't. James, Jesus' half-brother, spoke about the, this, this, this uh, quality of faith, the nature of true faith, when he wrote that faith without works is dead. And so the faith of the Thessalonians that Paul commends is not paralyzed by fear or indecision, It's not mobilized by anxiety or fear. In the midst of these circumstances that could have caused them to give up hope, their faith still continues to work. They don't pull back into themselves. They don't withdraw from the world. Their faith produces work. Next, Paul commends them for their labor prompted by love. Now, you think, well, what's the difference? Isn't that semantics, you know? Work produced by faith, labor prompted by love. Isn't that kind of the same thing? But it's not. Paul is going at something different here. The word that he uses for labor is always used in the New Testament to refer to heavy work or sweaty labor. We know what that is if you're living in Kansas. Kind of, you roll up your sleeves, you get your hands dirty, you, you work hard. You put, some, put your elbow grease, a little bit of elbow grease into it. And Jesus uses this term for labor in one of his most famous promises where he says, Come unto me, All you who labor, take my yoke upon you, and you're going to find rest. That's the word that Jesus uses. And and it's interesting that Paul decides to attach this word for labor to love. I think what he's trying to drive at for us is that love is heavy lifting. Love is, is hard work. It's a decision that we make to love others because we ourselves have experienced love from God. Jesus drives this home, makes it very vivid for us in in two parables. The first one is in Luke chapter 10. You might remember the story. A a, a lawyer, an expert in the law, uh, comes before him and asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is a great question. I mean, who doesn't want to know the answer to that? What do I need to do to please God? What do I need to do to enter heaven? And Jesus tells him, "You're, you're an expert. What do you think it says? And he says, well, I'm supposed to love God with my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and I'm supposed to love Uh, my neighbor as myself. Jesus says, you nailed it. You aced it. Go and do this and you'll have life. And and the guy, he he wants to justify himself. And so he asks a question of Jesus, which really has caused so much trouble in in, in all these divisions and, and tribal sort of things that happen in our world. A question, which is, who is my neighbor? In other words, who do I have to care about? Who do I have to serve? Uh, who's, who's with me? Who's against me? Who's in and, and who's out? Uh, who do I have to go the extra mile for? Who is my neighbor? 
This caused all sorts of problems. And Jesus then tells his most famous parable to to answer this guy's question. And Jesus tells a story about a, a man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Remember the story? He's walking along. He gets robbed. He gets beaten. He gets stripped naked. He gets left for dead. And he's laying there. And in the story, two men walk by, one at a time. One is a priest. One's a Levite. Uh, they have their excuses. They don't stop. It's not really justifiable, but they keep moving. And the third man, a Samaritan, comes along, and he sees this man, and he decides to help him. But before he helps him, Jesus says something interesting. He says his heart was filled with compassion. He, he, he loves this guy. He has, his heart is filled with love. And, and it's one of the strongest words for love in the New Testament. It's the Greek word that it comes from the root of gut. It's a visceral response. It's an instinctual response. It comes from, from the gut. He, he is filled with compassion. It's not an intellectual decision. It's not weighing the scales and saying, should I, should I not? He, he, he acts out of, out of love and compassion instinctually. And he, puts, he, he binds him up. He, he puts bandages on him. He, he gives him something to eat or drink. And this is a dangerous thing because he has no idea if the robbers are still there. This is risky for him to do this. And he puts him on the donkey and he takes him to an inn and he says, I'm paying for this. I'll be back in a few days. If, I'm owed, if you're owed more, I'll take care of it. And Jesus says, that's what it means to love your neighbor. You see, who we are to love is not decided by human standards or conventions. We love as Jesus first loved us indiscriminately and sacrificially. And often one doesn't make sense and doesn't really benefit us. Next, Paul commends the Thessalonians for their endurance inspired by hope in Jesus. And the word he uses here is a cool word. It's fun to say. Upomano. Upomano. It, it, it's, it's this idea of, of, of hanging on, of, of staying put, of, of being a faithful presence in the midst of the world. That's the word that Paul uses here. Upomano of hope. He combines it with hope. A hope that hangs in there. A hope that stays in there. A hope that's engaged in the game. A hope that doesn't run away. It holds on to you. It's optimistic. It's a hope that that looks up, a hope from underneath, as David Baron Harper writes. I like to think of it that way. A hope that looks up. A hope that looks up to Jesus. It looks to him, hope, real hope, hope that endures, looks to Jesus. Hope doesn't look to our retirement investments. Hope doesn't look to our physical health, our our intelligence, our education. Hope doesn't look to technology or medical advancements. Hope doesn't look to a political party or a political leader. Hope doesn't look to a particular nation even. Hope that endures looks to Jesus. Especially in the midst of frustrating, scary, hopeless circumstances, hope looks to Jesus. Let's flesh it out a little bit more. Verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God that he has chosen you. Now, I've officiated around 200 weddings or so. I don't have an accurate count, but I, it's probably a little bit more. Um, and those are one of the, I love doing weddings. They're a lot of fun to do. And one of my favorite things to do as a pastor is, is to be standing up here, and the bride and groom are staying here, and, and you, you almost feel like you're intruding when they, when they say their vows to each other. It's beautiful, and it's touching to see the love in their eyes, to see excitement as, as they publicly say, I choose you. I choose you. Because I love you, I choose to be with you for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, for sickness and health, 
till death do us part. I choose you. And love begins with a choice. That's what's so amazing about what God has done for us through Christ. God has chosen us because he loves us. We are children of God, not because we're superior or uniquely lovable, even if we kind of like to think that we are. And it's not because we do good things, maybe even a lot of the time. It's because God has chosen us. And we will look at a world that lacks hope, it's full of rancor and pain and injustice and suffering and death and division and hatred and racism and fill in the blanks. <clears throat> Where do we find hope? What is the source of our hope? The source of our hope is that we are deeply loved by God and chosen by him, period. That's the source of our hope. Our hope is anchored in our identity as children of God. And as children of God, all the promises that are fulfilled in Christ, all the promises that are made through Christ are ours. We can count on them. doesn't mean that life magically and suddenly gets better. It's all peaches and cream. doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. doesn't mean when we look out the window at the world or we look at the news that things suddenly have vastly improved. No. We live in a hopeless world. We're not going to find hope that endures from this world. This world is not permanent. It's often cruel and random. And it's unjust. We find hope from Christ. We find hope in his love for and his choice of us. But this hope is not just for us. This hope is not to be self-centered or selfish. This hope doesn't play it safe. The hope that Paul commends the Thessalonians for is hope that is paired with faith that produces work that labors, that love, and it has love that labors. And what that means in part is that we are to embody hope in our relationships with others. We are to be the most optimistic, most hopeful people on this planet. We embody hope by loving others as God has first loved us. Because as Paul wrote, love never fails. We are not to be people of anxiety or fear. Remember what John, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, said? about love, perfect love cast out fear. And in 1 John three sixteen, John says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. I'm going to close this morning by teaching you how to, this is going to sound odd, to do downhill skiing. Okay, I don't have any skis up here. Many of you are sure, much better skiers than I am. But here's three basic lessons. Uh, and I think we can, we can help use these lessons to help us find hope. Here they are. The first is you have to face down the hill, not across the hill. Okay? The second is you have to have enough speed to execute the turn. The third is the most important rule. You must put your weight on the downhill ski, not the uphill ski. If your weight is on the uphill ski, you'll have terrible falls. You want to go down the mountain and you want to put your weight on the downhill ski, which means your uphill ski is, uphill ski is lighter and you're able to execute turns. So that's skiing, three simple turns. You can go home and say, I learned how to ski. But there's only one problem. All three of those rules are contrary to our instincts. Those don't come naturally to us. Our instinct says, 
stay close to the mountain. Our instinct says, this is kind of scary. I've never done this before. It's kind of slippery. I've seen people get hurt, so go really slow. And our instinct is to put our weight on the uphill ski, to lean into the mountain. But if you don't do that, you can't turn, and you're going to wipe out, and you're in worse shape than if you follow the simple rules. You have to trust the truth of the instructor. You have to trust the truth of the physics of skiing. And that means the weight has to be on the downhill ski. And so you trust that and you put your weight on it. Paul tells us in a different letter, because of your salvation, work it out. Put your weight down on the salvation you have from Jesus Christ. For God is at work in your life. That's counterintuitive sometimes, isn't it? Because that's not the way the world seems to work or is. I mean, better to give than to receive? Ah, I don't, it feels good to give, but I mean, I, I like to receive a lot. I kind of like to save stuff. Or the first will be last and the last will be first. Really? I, that doesn't work that way on the playground. It doesn't work that way in the business world. Uh, if you want to save your life, you have to give it up? How does that make sense? To, to put our weight down upon Jesus Christ feels counterintuitive to us. But until we do, until we put our weight and our trust on Jesus Christ, our hope will be fragile and unstable and ultimately is not going to hold us up. True hope, hope that endures, looks up at Jesus and in return it will hold us up. We find hope through faith in Jesus because of his love for us. Now, much as I dislike what's going on in our crazy world, and this last year has been one for the record books, right? There is hope. And that hope is Jesus. And so one of the things I think might be happening this past year with all the craziness is that maybe, you know, I know that God's still at work, Right? Maybe, maybe he's stripping away the things that we put our trust in. Maybe he's laying bare the, maybe the idols we have or the things that we put too much emphasis upon. Maybe he's stripping things down to the point where we have to consider putting our weight upon him and him alone. And so this morning, if you feel God tugging at your heart, I'm going to close with prayer. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray along with me and to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in the midst of a crazy world, help me to find my hope in you. You have chosen me. You love me. You gave your son Jesus for me. I put my weight on you, Jesus. I put my faith in you. I trust in what your death for my sins has done, and I have hope because you rose again from the dead. I find my hope in you, Jesus. Fill me with your spirit and bring me a deep sense of your peace, your joy, your hope, and your love. Amen.